This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. Hi, I'm Brian. And I am Fred. And we're going to talk about The 39 Steps by John Buchan, first published in 1915. Um, it says Blackwood's Magazine, but actually I think there was an American publication first, which I think is kind of interesting. I think this is actually a uh, propaganda novel. Kind yeah, of. definitely. Um, Buchan apparently worked during World War One for uh, the you know propaganda ministry, which makes sense given, given what a good writer he is. Um, After the novel came out, right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I would guess the, around, he got the job time. on the strength yeah. of the popularity of the book, right? That's that's an, I'm a little unclear on the timeline, but well, he's definitely pro empire. <laughs> given given his uh, given his later job, I would have hoped that this would have been a first Canadian publication. Uh, it, I think it wasn't, but he, he uh, you know, in the everybody has seen the Thirty Nine Steps done by Hitchcock, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Th- that's that's the one where the character is Canadian, right? He he's and that's from 1935, which is, I believe, the same year that he's made uh, governor general. So that Jeez. might have been the reason for that. Um, and that yeah, oh, actually, uh, in the yes. uh, Orson Welles version, he also which I think is 38. Um, Orson Welles goes on and on about how he can't give enough. Right. Details about Buchan's name because it would take too long. Right. <laughs> He's got too many honorary degrees and doctorates and uh, titles and all that. Um, apparently, that was also broadcast across Canada. The uh, what's Orson Welles' show called? The Mercury Theater. Theater. Yeah. Mercury, Mercury Theater. Theater. That's right. And I know he did uh, during World War II. Uh, Wells did a bunch of propaganda. Um, pieces as well, including um, one that's really interesting. It's about uh, the invasion of Canada uh, by Nazis. Yeah. A real plan that the Nazis had. Oh, why didn't you tell me about that? Oh, what is that? You know, um, I'm sure I posted about it on on the site. Um, Nazis invading Canada? Yeah. Apparently, it's like eyes drawn up plans and, you know, they're going to do this and they're going to do that. That was uh, from attacking from their uh, base on the moon, of course. <laughs> no, 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 no. Attacking from uh, Greenland. That's one of the reasons why um, oh, yeah. the U.S. occupied Greenland uh, mm-hmm. during World War II. You mean Ultima Thule? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to stick to realism for now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was the the, the domino pattern was to if, if sea lion worked, then the Nazis would have conquered Britain, and then they would have been able to step to Iceland, and then Greenland, mm-hmm. and then Canada. You know, well, just, and and Norway would have been the first. It was the first step in that plan, probably. Mm-hmm. I I assume, mm-hmm. right? Yep, and they outfoxed the British there very well. They were down in uh, Antarctica too, you know. They were yeah. all over the place. My my favorite one is the the most southern death in World War II was uh, a sailor on the German Navy was killed some some sort of accident or uh, uh, sickness, and he's buried. Uh, he was buried on uh, Kerguelen, which is in one of the most remote places in the world. It's it's like in the south southern Indian Ocean, not very far away from Antarctica. 
it's like that's just so such a weird fact because it used mm. to be French, right? And then they took the French, and so all their <laughs> their uh, offshore colonies and possessions became German, right? Is there a temple to Cthulhu on that island? <laughs> there, if there is one on Earth, that is the most likely place, <laughs> even in the Pacific. Um, it's just so remote, and the island is awesome. The and the island next to it. Uh, Isle de Crozet, I think is how it's pronounced. Um, this is the coolest island ever. If you look at uh, all the name, the naming of all the features are named after Jules Verne characters and, <laughs> uh, you know, scenes and stuff like that. So there's a craters on this place and it's just amazing. It's impossible to go there. And the only thing to eat is sea cabbage. Um, because, <laughs> but whatever. That's, we're getting slightly off topic. Not giant albino penguins. And there are yeah, there are pe- there are penguins in one of the other guys. Um, uh, puffins, I think. Mm-hmm. Or maybe puffins are in the north. I can't remember. So you're just fleeing Scotland. You're you're not you're not sticking to Scotland like our hero in Thirty Nine <laughs> Steps. Yeah, why does he go to Scotland? Uh, because just, you because can't. The author knew it. Yeah, right. and then the, char- the character had some connection there as well, didn't he? In the all the different ad- movie adaptations, they always come up with different reasons for why he's going to Scotland. Um, other than the one that he says, which is, you know, he knows he, up there he could uh, use his Veltcraft, right? <laughs> but it's it's. It, I think the real excuse is, yeah, Buckin likes Scotland. He loves Scotland. He knows Scotland, and apparently the title. The 39 Steps is a real place mm-hmm. uh, in Kent where he wrote the book. With a, he had an ulcer or something. So, um, it's Yeah, there's right. a character in uh, Green Mantle who has a duodenal ulcer and complains <laughs> bitterly. <laughs> uh, he, has to, he has this little ritual where he heats the milk because he can only – basically survives on hot milk. And I think there's one other food. Yeah. And yeah. so – and I just just now today learned that that was all autobiographical. Mm-hmm. I think suffered from that for a long time, didn't he? I I think he might even well, died of uh, uh, duodenal cancer. Actually, I'm not sure. Oh, it started in 1910, and I doubt that there was really a cure. Mm, no, nobody gets out of this game alive, <laughs> except Henny, because he has a. <laughs> That's true. I. I have to say, I, I, uh, I'd seen the Hitchcock movie a couple of times, which I really liked. Yeah, um, it's really stylish. I think I read the comic when I was a kid, because when I was in elementary school, I, I went through a, a boatload of Classics Illustrated. Um, and then, um, so th- I think, though, this is the first time I actually read the book. And I, I thought it was a riot. It was, it was so um, almost tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. It was so manic. It was just constantly zipping along. Oh, here's a stabbing. Oh, here's an airplane. Ah, oh, here's the villain. You know, and then um, and it was short. The whole book is like, I don't know, hundred hours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was it was brisk, um, and that so that was that was one thing that I just I really admired how how elegant the prose was. Jesse, you sent us a, um, a BBC um, I think audio discussion of Buckin, and they yeah. just talked about just how stripped down his prose was, and I. I was I was looking at this yesterday as I was listening to um, some Edith Wharton at the same time, and just the contrast was astonishing. You know, going from these enormous, vast, sprawling contemporary paragraphs to Buckin zipping along, dip, 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 
and you know never a word wasted. And it was really good. Yeah, I, I, I think he, you know, told first person and with the um, the character, he has a judgment about everything, which I think it, it's a, yes. it's it's like the the word for this is subjective, right? The the whole all the scenes where you know he's confronting a bunch of strangers or he see uh, I, I, there's a lot of coincidences going on in in this book and in, in all the movies as well there's tons of coincidence but the one he's 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 in scotland and all of a sudden on the side of the road there's a car oh and he happens to know the guy who's in it right <laughs> oh and he's quite an asshole which is quite convenient because he needs to beat the crap out of him and steal his car or whatever yeah i noticed that too that was so perfect that he's he's someone that uh the narrator can absolutely treat like crap and be completely justified yeah and all the other times he treats people you the, know the as, sheer convenience as, of it beyond the extent. coincidence you know it's, it's too bad but you know there's a greater good sort of thing yeah yeah well they're really i mean that's the stakes are are enormous the stakes are you know human civilization right this or at least <laughs> you know um i mean that's I, I was reminded of um, another classic of early espionage fiction, uh, The Riddle of the Sands um, hmm. by Children's. That's a little which, like late 19th century, uh, 1890 something? 1903, I think. Um, really? And, it, and it's, um, it's also about a sneaky German plot. Um, and it's also about an a ordinary guy who gets caught up in this um, story. Um, it's very different, though. It's... Um, it uh, takes place at sea. It's about um, a guy who goes sailing with an old friend, and it turns out that the friend is actually a spy. So it's kind of like um, a reverse thirty-nine steps, yeah. Yeah, or like um, uh, Patrick O'Brien's books, um, where uh, the uh, the sea captain doesn't quite realize that his friend is a spy. Mm. Um, but um, but that's what's at stake: is is Germany, the evil empire, taking out the British Empire? Then. Um, and so this is in part one of the many invasion novels that you get, mm. you know, War of the Worlds being the greatest. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, but it's also the craze for invasion fiction that that, that was a, a chain in yep. right, the riddle of the sands. Yeah. No, I read a bunch of these and they're all, you know, the evil Germans and they, and they always do sneakily. You know, they uh, <laughs> they have some kind of trip that they play. And one of the things I liked here was that the. Uh, um, the practical nature of the uh, conspiracy was um, mining British harbors. Okay, that's good. And then uh, using U-boats to take out the British Navy at the seas, on the seas. I mean, that was, that was very practical. That's a good plan. Right, right at the beginning of the war, wasn't there um, a shocking um, incident? What, Scapa Flow? Yeah. Yes, the the yes. big uh, base in Scotland where... S- Several major ships were sunk because yep. they were not prepared to guard the harbor, and a U-boat or maybe several got in, and just yeah. just they were sitting ducks. Good point. I seem Good to recall point. something about uh, hearing about Winston Churchill, who would have been what first Lord of the Ad- Admiralty at that point, or yeah, for um, about a, mm-hmm. for about a year, cause... and just weeping at the news. I mean, yeah. it, that that was a shocker, and I'm sure that incident would have informed Buchan's paranoia about U, U-boats. Mm. I think you're totally right. And the British had nothing to nothing to fight back. The British didn't have a U-boat program. Mm. It's a, I, I think this book is interesting as a, you know, because it, 
I, for some reason, I thought before I read the Wikipedia entry, I thought it was actually written prior to the events of, of uh, you know, June, July, June of uh, 1914. So I, I thought it was prior to the assassination of Archduke oh. Ferdinand. All oh. the things that sort of lead us into that. But I think the reason I was thinking that is because I had read um, Rogue Mail, sort of, which I think of as the, sort of the the World War II version of this book. How because, is it? Oh, it's a great book. Such a okay. uh, that's uh, uh, Jeffrey Household. Right. Um, he is like Buck, and he's really great at telling a fast-paced uh, adventure tale. And that book is uh, it's about one man's revenge against a unnamed but very obviously uh, Hitler. <laughs> very obviously it's Hitler. <laughs> His plan is to is to get a um, sniper rifle, or a hunting rifle as he calls it, and just happen to be in the woods near uh, the Eaglehof, or whatever it's called. Um, and he's there, and he's taking aim at Hitler, and then, lo and behold, there's an SS guy right behind him. And the rest of the novel is him on the run, uh, trying to get back to England, and that was written prior to uh, 1939's, you know, Polish oh. stuff. So that one is, it's like a, oh. yeah, this war is inevitable. It's coming. Um, and yeah, I'm sort of just leading the the charge on that. But this one, it, it actually, you know, all the stuff about Karolides, that, that's, it's like Buchan knows what's going to happen because he's writing it at the time of, of uh, in in 1914 after the assassination of our Archduke Ferdinand, so Carolina kind of like a if if war was inevitable, right? If it wasn't Carolides, it was going to be uh, you know Archduke Ferdinand, and so what can we do? All, we're just lucky we had Hannay to help us uh, win the war, and apparently this book was really popular in the trenches, um, and you can see why. Well, anything would be, you know. Um, I mean, <laughs> true. I mean, you, you got to imagine, like reading about, well, you know, this guy walking around bright, sunny Scotland, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're drowning in your own filth in Flanders, that's that's fabulous, you know. I mean, oh, he's being shot. All right, that's great. I understand, you know. <laughs> yeah, and he, he thinks about breakfasts. You know, he could yeah. eat what, uh, a whole. Uh, uh, no, half a pig and sixty <laughs> eggs or something. Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He eats well on the run. He does. Uh, he does. But it was also it was a cereal as well, and so that you know, you know, you got something to look forward to. Um, oh, I do like the way that every chapter is. It is like you know the um, the later you know like the Republic cereals is kind of you know yeah. bang lots of action and often the cliffhanger leaving you kind of oh, how's he going to get out of this? You know what what happens next? Right. Right. Did you guys all get a chance to listen to the audiobook version uh, from LibriVox that I put together? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, that was good fun. It was a, yeah, it was a good yeah, narrator. A uh, good range of voices for all the characters Hannah uh, encounters. And he does the, accents, the Scottish mm. accents really well. Adrian Pritzelis is the narrator. I, I would yeah. like to know about that last name. P-R-A-E? Well, I can't tell you much about him him other than in one of the chapters with the the enders and beginners that sort of start and begin uh you know every LibriVox recording this is a LibriVox recording it's in the mm-hmm. public domain blah 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 um at the end of one of them or at the beginning the, of one of them the, the bald he, art um architect. that's right he says yes. um it's called the bald architect he says um 
This one's uh, written by a bald, uh, a semi-bald. <laughs> oh, no, it's read by a semi-bald archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> Was it architect or archaeologist? It's archaeologist because oh, okay. Uh, okay. he's a professor of anthropology okay, uh, yeah. uh, somewhere in the States. Um, and a great LibriVox narrator who's done a, a lot of other work, which I'm looking forward to going through. Uh, Adrian Pritzelis, that is. Um, so, uh, along with a lot of other fiction of this era, I want to table my dream theory. <laughs> um, uh, it's very, I think it's very well done in the most recent audio drama version, which is the one I sent out to everybody this morning in code. Um, it's pretty simple code. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, that, that version is probably the best, but it's actually in the original book as well. Um, he's tired of London. And he's just about going to give up on it if only something interesting could happen. Right. And then what? Lo and behold, he gets involved in a murder plot. (laughs) (laughs) And off and running, he's, you know, got all the he he was even complaining. I'm not getting enough exercise. (laughs) And London has no interest for me. And um, a number of times throughout the book, uh, I picked out these quotes here. uh, The words sleep and dream and wake Mm. all come up Mm. so he says uh the whole business had mesmerized me this is near the end where they're uh they're trying to trick him in the way same way that he tricked them earlier um that oh no that's all big mistake you've got the wrong guy right when they uh so he says um the whole business had mesmerized me we went into the smoking room where the card table was set out and i offered I was offered things to smoke and drink. I took my place at the table in a kind of dream. And then then in that same scene a little later, when they saw me wake when they saw me, they wakened up and the police yes. advanced, raised hand and cried for me to stop. Oh, that no, that's earlier. Sorry. You're gonna say something, Brian. Go for it. Oh, I thought I thought that was actually I was thinking of you every time I saw a dream, I thought, ah, this is gonna be on this. Um, yeah. But also, I think because you because you're right because this is there is that uh, Freudian sense of um, of you know everything being really nearby and think, some things happen magically like the uh, the German spies mm. yacht just gets taken right but also I, I thought at the at the end of that climax scene which I loved I, I thought that was really that was good writing because um, it was becoming surreal it reminded me that there's an awesome scene in uh, Philip K Dick's novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. When um, the androids build their own police station and staff it with fake cops. Yes, yes. It's, it's the middle of the book. It's nowhere. Mm-hmm. It's not in the movie, and, and it's a great surreal scene where you're like, "What?" I mean, it's it's one of those Philip K. Dick reality is bending moments, and and here it comes close because um, he has that moment of doubt. Did I get this right? This is a chain of weak clues, you know, and and these guys are very convincing <laughs> because yeah, they're playing. They're playing tennis. They're using London slang. They've got the right ties, you know. And yeah, it, he's right. It, it could be he could have gotten the wrong family. It's uh, it, there's so much about subjectivity in this book. So he meets somebody and he says, like, yeah, I know exactly how this person is. I know exactly right. how this is all play. And he even mentions, you know, he he understands the upper class. He understands the lower class. Gets along with both of them. The middle class, he's not so clear about. That's interesting. Yeah, well, I think that's true. That's also another thing that's true of uh, of our 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 author, right? 
is that that's how he was as well. Like he, he has no problem being governor general of Canada and then going down to the lowest people in Canada and shaking hands with them. But the people sort of in, in between, not so, not so clear as to, you know, how to deal with them. But definitely there's, there's, this is reminded me a lot of a contemporaneous sort of novel that we did. um, The prisoner of Zenda in that, the main character, you know, he's loafing around London and he just needs to some get, go on some adventure. And he says, oh, I'll go off to uh, Eastern Europe and see see what's going on there. And then everything that happens is like very, very much what you would have predicted. There's a twin mm. of him. Mm. There's, it, it, he even falls asleep. You know, it, this is sort of I mean, it's a it's a convention that I think really helps fiction of this kind where it is. I mean, honestly, this is impossible. <laughs> the kind of uh, book that, uh, you know, that Scudder's put together is it's fun, but he wouldn't have he wouldn't have coded it that way. Right. I mean, this is this is a boy's own adventure sort of version of of James, uh, you know, amateur James Bond. Well, don't forget, though, that Scudder's an American and that makes all things possible. <laughs> I mean, you know, like in, in Dracula, which is only, you know, 20 years before this, you know, it's the Texan who's the most violent, or you think about uh, Jules Verne from the Earth to the Moon. Well, we're going to make a giant gun and blast into space. Who's going to do it? Oh, it's the Americans, of course, you know. <laughs> um, no, I, I, there's definitely a boys on adventure, lots of practical details. And, um, and you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I don't know if you guys had this experience. I, I kept wondering how do these things work in detail? Like he, when Scudder does the, does the um, disguise, and he mentions on, in passing, oh, I'm pretty good with the disguise, like as one is, right? You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, or or being stuck in the in the uh, basement storage uh, place and then having to find blasting explosive, <laughs> right? I mean, I kept I kept wondering, okay, how exactly is he doing this? I mean, this wasn't a criticism. I mean, I felt drawn in, you know, mm-hmm. like you know, how's he striking a light? How far away does he have to go? I mean, that's a sign of good writing. He blew himself up. I mean, it's it's <laughs> yeah. a, it's a wonderful sort of conceit. And then notice n- nobody was there. He blew out the house for no reason, right? Because they had all left. They locked him in in the basement with all these explosives. He blows himself up, and then all the cars are well, gone. He he had to escape though. He couldn't get out of the room. It is um, very serialized like that. They have those lists of um, the to-do list of villain. You know, when you capture the hero, the list of things you should not do. You know, <laughs> like don't don't start to kill him and then walk away and assume right. that he's dead. You yeah, know, right. those kinds of things. And uh, you'll have to add to the list. Don't lock the hero in a room <laughs> filled with explosives. TNT. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he has those skills. That skill, not the disguise skill, but... Uh, the the disguise skill he gets from a friend uh, a seedy friend in in Rhodesia who who's always on the wrong side of the law but in a good way right I love the right. subjectivity right. that's going on there and he says you know all you have to do is is act like you you belong there and and I mean that I think that the scene with him playing the roadman is a very <laughs> great scene I love um, that yeah. I don't know how he exactly convinces the roadman other than the fact that the roadman doesn't want to do the work he's drunk out of his mind and yeah such. i was like hey why don't i do your job for you whatever that's fine here's your sure hat. i have no idea who you are but go, go ahead that's great <laughs> that's right. it worked with the milkman the milkman had this but they better pretext so he said well it's a bet and look goes, oh, yeah, it's, 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 if it's a wager well then yes <laughs> have my hat 
<laughs> You're a sporting man. <laughs> but I do like kind of he just like, a lot of his disguise is psychology. It's like when he's you know, posing, he poses a, you know as a cattleman because he knows the guy he's talking to knows nothing about that. <laughs> Right. You can sound convincing, mm-hmm. and it's all that kind of you. You can get the measure of a man, and therefore he can, you know, appear to fit uh, in by playing on what they he knows they don't know. Uh, or the uh, the road road crew supervisor who probably just doesn't really care. Mm. That's right. Yeah. There's a guy in the job for next is, time. <laughs> you don't need to know me now, but you'll know me for next time. Uh, that's going to be next small. time I'm on the 401. I'll think about that. Right? Yeah. So though I think the the culmination of this sort of ridiculousness of you know imposture is in the scene that every version keeps, and that's the scene where he he's the the speaker at the liberal candidates meeting. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, in some versions he's talking about Australia. In some versions he's talking about uh, free trade. Yeah, uh, I can't yeah. remember which which is it in the book. Free trade is is the original, and he uh, Buchan stood uh, as a candidate for Parliament in 1911, hmm. and free trade was one of his on his platform. So that's uh, a lot more self-deprecating humor than you would realize. Well, I, I, I also think it's interesting because who who's in charge? Isn't it the Whigs during the war? Right? Liberals. Is it yeah. the liberals? Mm. Really interesting. Yeah, uh, Churchill was a liberal at that time, and it was That's... Asquith, wasn't it? Yeah, initially. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but that, but liberal, of course, means something very different than it does in the right. But no, but the but the free trade class. is a liberal, yeah, policy. And it, are they talking free trade within the empire? Or are they just talking free trade in general? It's, it's within the empire, right? Right. I think so. That would be it. Would essentially be a bit a better deal for the colonists. I think mm-hmm. is probably what it means in this context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sell more stuff to the rest of the empire. Mm-hmm. Um, but Britain wanted to make sure that it maintained the flow of cash everywhere and goods just the just the right way. I mean, that was a key part of um, of policy. I, I just I just love the ability the, this scene just to just to like stand up, just make stuff up and. And the crowd likes it, except for the um, the uh, the host who says, "What you were as satisfying as a mortician or something?" What is he? Yeah, very insulting. What what was it? Yeah, it's because Hannah was quite pleased with that, with how he bluffed his way through it. It was a bit rebuffed yeah. when the good reverence said, "No, no, no, Harry's speech was better." <laughs> The, the the minister proposed a vote of thanks. He spoke of Sir Harry's speech as statesmanlike, and mine is having the eloquence of an emigration agent. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then his host, the actual host, says, "A ripping speech, Twisden." <laughs> yeah, well, there, his names as they come up in the uh, in you know his pseudonyms as they come up are there was one that was was really reminding me of of something else and it wasn't so one of them is hammond right instead of hannay um do you guys remember any of the others there's twisden and i think uh, he he, sometimes he takes the names of people he knows it's i can't remember them all and i'm so confused i i really got to figure out how to do this where you don't uh, maybe i need to read the book first or read the book last because I was watching the movies while listening to the book, and then I'd listen to the audio dramas, and I'm like, they're all mixed together. 
So <laughs> in your head is, is a 39 steps, which is a work of literature which exists nowhere else I, except in your head. Yeah, well, get it out there, man. Well, so one of the things that's always changed for no reason that I can tell is that what the meaning of the title is. So in the Hitchcock movie, the 39 steps are uh, the organization of spies, the black stone or the Schwarzstein, as I guess they would call it. Yeah. Um, uh, why did they change that? I don't know. I guess they don't want to film down by the water. <laughs> or it's, um, it's kind of disappointing. I mean, you think, you know, the 39 steps is all mysterious and cryptic. Yeah. And what does it stand for? It's actually it's 39 steps. Exactly I mean, it's kind of dull. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, isn't that a stretch to think that he would ever find that or figure it out? I mean, that's a really obscure clue. Well, I find I th- it disappointing. I think that the, this, this goes to the idea that, you know, when you're Lord Tweedsmere, um, you know everybody who's worth knowing right. anywhere, right? So when he eventually gets back to London and they're working on where, what this could possibly be, um, one guy just happens, you know, it's, they all went to school together. One guy happens to know the guy who knows all of this because he's the guy in charge of, you know, the but, ghost. But it's not just that, though. It's that it's, um, again, empire. I mean, I, I, I tend to read politically and historically, and this makes sense. Of, I mean, you know, when, when – um, in Dracula, when uh, Dracula is, um, uh, is is talking with Jonathan Harker about his new house in um, in England, you know they have all these wonderful photos from Kodak, and then they have all this um, all the survey maps, the ordnance survey maps that are extremely detailed, um, and it's an important part about Dracula being this sneaky, subversive guy. He's able to use British imperial power against Britain. And and here, you know, he smacks into the first Lord of the Admiralty, basically. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's in the corridors of power, and they have this information. They they don't have Google Earth, which would have made this a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know, it's it's important to see that he's at one point I think he actually talks about having the powers of empire at his back. Um mm-hmm. and that's you know, that's a real uh it's it's symbolically a, a real a real you know, um here I I told myself it was a sheer silly conceit that four of the five cleverest people living with all the might of their British empire at their back had the job in hand. You know, so I, you've, you've got to, you've got to ramp it up. Um, and it's also, if we go back to the kind of ego pleasure of the book, this is him being rewarded, you know, mm-hmm. for being on the run, being hunted by cops and run down by airplanes to now he's in the upper corridors of power and power is working well. This is the other thing. This is 1915. This is when uh, morale is pretty low in basically every country in World War One. Um, that this is a hellish experience, and then there's a lot of doubt about British command um, and their ability to do this thing right. And you know, 1915, 1916, that the doubt will just expand because Britain is, you know, there's a lot of disasters uh, going on. In fact, yesterday, 100 years ago, begins the landings of the Gallipoli campaign, right? Right. Which was Churchill's idea, for which he loses his job and goes in political exile because of the disaster that it is. Um, so I, I think if this is a propaganda book, in part, you know, we get into the empire, and the empire does the right thing; they save the people. The the smart thing to do would have been stay out of it, but this book, like you know, is in that propaganda tradition. Is we we can't stay out of it; they're actually after us. The right. liberal candidate, right, is all wishy washy with the Germans. Well, we just di- unilaterally disarm and then ask the Germans to do the same. That's oh, good. That's gonna yeah. work. Maybe not, <laughs> but you don't actually have to, you know, declare war. But one of the things that's going on in this book and and in 
other versions as well is that uh, there is a secret pact between France and the UK, right? This is not known in 1914, but it's known in 1915, right? <laughs> um, so it's in the book. Um, and, you know, the fact that the, the French ambassador is there or whatever, uh, I, I'm assuming that I'm getting this right, that this is in the book and not in just two of the audio dramas and one of the movies or whatever. Am I right in this? That I'm getting this is in the book? Yeah. A French. But there's, uh, but there's, there's also more propaganda there because the uh, the French guy is really smart and really competent and gives him good advice. And in British fiction, that's not mm. usually the case. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, we're coming after we're coming after two centuries of uh, Britain fighting with France and demeaning France. I mean, um, I was really impressed by that. Just uh, my expectation was the French guy was going to fumble it or be you know awful, but but he nope, he helps them out. Bad in this actually. I mean, even the Germans are uh, they're competent, right? Nobody True. nobody's uh, True. you know playing the fool except for you know the audience and playing along. But yeah, I I, I I mean it's a really enjoyable book. But in the context of the of the time it's written. Um, it's a little more, uh, I, I don't want to say sinister, but it's, you know, it is propaganda, right? It's delivering you <coughs> what you want in the sense that, you know, ultimately the good guys, uh, the people who are, you know, upright and such are going to be rewarded, even yes. if they are on the run and they having privations, etc. If you just go over the top gentlemen or tommies <laughs> you know yes. all things will be right in the end we'll have tea tea in the afternoon well that was that was for me the uh, the last paragraph just blew me away where his reward is to go into a western front right and I, wow i mean five years five years <laughs> later you you couldn't have written this no well, fred you you you're you've read green mantle um that's yes. set during the war right that's right it's the it's the direct sequel there's some um, what a total of five novels with uh, mm. Hannay in them, but um, uh, in Green Mantle, he's called to break up a. Well, at the beginning, they have no idea. They have a, a, a couple of keywords, and um, they send Hannay and his friend Peter Penar. I think that's hey. how you pronounce it. He that's the one uh, the the guy from the wrong side of the law who mm. is yeah. the supremely competent. At uh, the Weltcraft. I love that word, Weltcraft. I'm going to have to work that into a conversation or two this week. <laughs> but, um, uh, and they discover what's going on there uh, is that the Germans are have found this Muslim prophet uh, who is, and they believe they are going to rouse all of Islam on their side and that they can pull strings and manipulate it and get, get another piece of propaganda. No, this is that was what true. Doing. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, but, that, that, but that was true. Um, that was, I know. Oh. yeah, the, the Germans in world war two as well. The Germans have mm -hmm. always had this um, idea that they could somehow leverage the, the passion. If you can just get the, the profit, you know, um, you know, um, Islam is this powder keg that you just need the right spark and then of course uh, hopefully that the violence will be directed at your enemies and not at you right it'll go uh, right to the Suez Canal part. and it'll go into India and you know it'll give them North Africa I mean that's uh, I mean you know and that's so it, it was a key part of World War One. again you know mentioning Gallipoli right mm -hmm. um, 
Mm-hmm. But this is, uh, in effect, uh, in Iraq, the British uh, army will invade Iraq and a major British army will get captured um, uh, by the locals uh, at Kut, which is a terrible defeat. Um, and no, it's 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 absolutely true. I'm just I'm, I'm fascinated by Green Metal. I haven't read it yet, but it's isn't it doesn't also turn on the war with the Russians. Uh, well, yeah, there's a climactic scene at the end. Uh, spoiler, <laughs> slight spoilers, but yeah, the the final climactic battle occurs in Turkey with the the Russians. It's all pretty much everybody. The 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 Germans are there, the Turks, the Russians. I think the English somehow is that even possible? I'm not sure. But um, and then um, so it's it's one of these where the hero and his small group are have this very personal battle against the mm. leaders of the other side, while the armies are clashing as well. And it's uh, that that that's a device that happens a lot in historical fiction where. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Everybody knows how the battle is going to turn out, but you've personalized it with your fictional hero who, you know, has a chance. Like, like the enemy is going to – has a, a secret means of making the battle turn out a different way, and then the, your hero um, stops that plan. So this secret history with this fictional hero – Mm. It's all it's all there happening in Greenmail. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like for example, yeah. in um yeah. in the ending of uh, what Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um Yes. What, what's Strange. the the full title? Jonathan uh, Strange and Mr. Norrell. Mr. Norrell. <laughs> yeah, there's a battle I don't think it's Waterloo, but it's another battle in the in uh, the Napoleonic Wars where you already know uh the English are gonna win. But there's the magicians are fighting each other as well. And in any case, the the magicians help win the battle, but no, right. you know it, that's that never got recorded in history. And um, it's a little disappointing because you always know how the battle is going to turn out. Right. It reminds me of um, there's a Conrad story that got turned into a beautiful film by Ridley Scott called The Duelists. Mm, uh, great movie. Two guys in the Napoleonic Wars who hate each other and they duel, hence the name. Um, basically, through the Napoleonic Wars, they fight in Russia, they fight in uh, at Austerlitz. I mean, it's um, the beautiful film. Based I mean, on a true story, did you know that? Apparently, mm, apparently. Yeah. Well, the Napoleonic Wars is always just this major generator of stories that's really underappreciated. But oh, another example that's a better of what I'm talking about is the uh, His Majesty's Dragon. Mm. I haven't read that. Where story. there's a dragon core in parallel with and. Um, uh, Napoleon actually attempts an invasion, but because the English Dragon Corps defeats the French Dragon Corps, the invasion uh, either has to be called off or fails. Yeah, or something so, um, like that. In, in these situations, generally what happens is the magic neutralizes it, itself, right? So that the conventional forces can win. Yeah, that's right. So, in the same way that they did in history, right? Right, exactly. So, so the, the bad guys have this secret weapon and then the good guys defeat the secret weapon or as you say neutralize it yeah exactly so in, there's a similar uh there's a really great radio drama series that's been running forever uh called well audio drama because it's podcast uh red panda adventures which is about a canadian superhero in toronto who uh, you know <laughs> defeats local 
criminals, but as, when World War II starts, because it, it's... Is he defeating his girlfriend's ex-boyfriends? Well, his girlfriend is his driver. <laughs> no, uh, I'm, that's the, uh, who, and eventually... So what am I talking about? Have a kid. Um, but during <laughs> you World know War what II, I mean, though, don't you? Uh, I well, know what you mean. Um, um, oh, what that, that, oh, come on. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Yes. Scott. Oh, oh, oh right. right. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm just red causing panda. confusion here. Red Panda. So it's the Red Panda Adventures by, uh, Greg, um, I want to say Roger Greg, but that's not right. Greg Taylor. Um, it's from Decoder Ring Theater. Uh, the Nazis have their own supervillains, right? And the Canadians, and I guess the Americans have some too, but they're not very important. Um, Canadian superheroes go over to Europe and fight uh, the, you know, the dinosaur clone robot army. So it's a, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It goes right. well because the, you know, they've destroyed the the, the con- non-conventional forces. It's it's kind of like the Avengers in World well, War II. It, it's Captain Sorry. America, but it's Captain Canada. Right, Captain right. Canada. That's great. Well, it's it's yeah. actually there's a, there is a Canadian comic book called Captain Canuck. Yeah. <laughs> um, Isn't it? Looks a lot like Captain America, actually. This is a, a Tim Powers trope too. Um, the uh, where he likes he mostly writes historical fantasy, and he likes to embed things in. Um, uh, magical fantasy plots in in the real world um mm-hmm. so he did this um oh what's it called? i think it's called declare it's about oh, um, yeah um you know the cold war and and um and it has and and the nazis i think that's been a while since i read it but uh but again, Philby. yeah yeah Philby and his dad who i didn't know about um and again with the near east right the uh oh yes mount you know, ararat yeah yeah um is Islamic sort of like uh, genies or Islamic uh, mm-hmm. demigods battling it out at the top of Mount Ararat. Yeah, and and Noah's Ark is there, right? I, I and then and then Berlin. They go back to, to right. Berlin for the climax. I mean, so that's um, no. I'm I'm interested in Green Mantle because I'm on a big World War One kick right now, as you guys are probably bored of hearing me say. But mm-hmm. um, but one part about World War One that's fascinating is. Everybody in World War One studies is trying to look at the rest of the world besides the Western Front, um, because it was actually a world war, hence the name, right? Um, and but people are really drawn to the suffering of the Western Front. So for me, the the Eastern Front is just endlessly fascinating. I mean, a huger war, much more disastrous uh, for um, especially for Russia. But one part of it is that while Russia is battling Austro-Hungarians and the and the Germans, they also fight the Turks. And they managed to invade Turkey and get halfway across the country by the time uh, their war collapses. And so that's, you know, for me, that leads me to Greenmantle. I'd be really curious to see how Buchan treats the other ally, not the French, but the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, you should check out, there's a book I, I posted on the PDF page of my website called Duel for Kilimanjaro. Uh, it's not that well written, but it's fascinating history nonetheless. Um, it's... Uh, Subtitled Africa, 1914 to 1918, the dramatic story of an unconventional war. And oh, it's, right, it's about the Germans in German East yeah, Africa yeah. against the British, uh, uh, mostly retired Hene style guys, right? Yeah, well, the Germans had they, the, the author. I can't think of the the guys, the commander. He uh, this is this is study, when people study guerrilla war, they always study mm-hmm. this. The, the guy Leto Vorbeck. Yes. Uh, 
like insanely outnumbered and he just he just constantly had these guys i think he outlasted the german empire yeah. <laughs> um, um yeah and he's he was like uh, there's a lot of stuff about after you know he goes back there after the war um and they're like cheering him you know the native people who he's he's uh championing and then if you follow his story like on the read the wikipedia entry for him um he's he's like the nazis try and sort of you know get him on the team and he's like mm, not really <laughs> i like uh, black people you know <laughs> i'm not really um down with all that the racism so, part yeah not not so so much with it oh speaking uh, of which that was one thing that gobsmacked me in the book and i i don't think this is in any of the films or the tv show uh, ha- the, the anti-semitic um yeah. tale oh, oh the, yes the uh Snitters is um opening version of the conspiracy yeah i mean i know yeah, when i was listening to the audiobook i was thinking the... jesus people say lovecraft racist have you read this yeah. <laughs> the jew is everywhere <laughs> the, it's but, the international but, banking conspiracy right yeah but that's mm. undermined later when he is, is. dismissed right, yeah. as a crank and um and and we know that bucket i mean bucken was completely capable of casual anti-semitism but um he um it was casual. he did he did deni- he he predicted and denounced the rise of uh of the uh nazi anti-semitism uh, so i just i just mm. i i know that people have have taken that quote out and you you know highlighted it but i'm just not sure that that that's oh, no. really buckens oh no not. i i wasn't i wasn't thinking of that i, I was yeah, thinking good. of two things i mean first was just what a um what a shock to lead the book with that. I mean, this is in the second chapter, first chapter. I mean, right away, we get the international Jewish banking conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, because because this book is so wild, that's just a cover story. <laughs> that's a smokescreen. <laughs> yeah. That's what people are expecting. Yeah. It's but what, I mean, you know, he's reflecting com- contemporary attitudes at the time that, you know, sure. that these, these crazy conspiracy theories and smears, you know, Work, work, common currency, and uh, you know, work, yeah. work did have a lot of traction at the time, uh, worryingly. <laughs> um, but you know, I think, I think it's interesting that, he, that that's front and center, but then that's later so revealed to be that is just a cover, which is, as you say, <laughs> completely wild. But and well, you know, Buchan said there was a shocker, you know, what I mean, it, 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 you know, the nature of the adventure was to you know, test the audience's disbelief of how far. <laughs> He could spin uh, the yarn. Um, uh. Well, two different characters adopt the principle that um, you that you only believe the unbelievable tale. Like the the main character, that was his attitude toward yeah um, the the spy who gets knifed. But then that uh, innkeeper later he meets the innkeeper, and because the the kid is so young and naive, he decides to trust him. And the innkeeper says the same thing. Oh, I only believe the outlandish tale. Yeah, that was <laughs> that should have been an epigraph for the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, completely dependent on. Uh, I think that it's a wink to the audience. I mean, I think there's a lot of <laughs> winks to the audience in this book. Well, I want to, if I if I can come back for a second, the 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 um, the Jewish conspiracy thing plugs into a couple of things. One is that this is. Sadly, the era where the uh, the great um, Russian police forgery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, has come out and is you know being circulated, 
Um, so I wonder if that wasn't playing a role in the audience of this book. But also, here's a plug for uh, my friend's book. If you don't know The United States of Paranoia, it's a great, great fun read by Jesse Walker. It's a history of conspiracy theories in the U.S. Uh, and it's, it's a delightful, compulsively readable book. But one of the one of the points he he mentions is that there are different types of conspiracies. Um, there's the conspiracy from below where people are trying to undermine you. There's mm-hmm. a conspiracy from above where the elite are plotting against you. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the way that 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 both of those combine so neatly here, where it's the um, it's the marginal group, the the Jews who are suffering for anti-Semitism, but they are actually pulling all the strings. They are combining makes, things. It makes no sense. <laughs> but but it, it plugs into uh, contemporary thinking so much because five years from now, from the now of the book, when Germany is defeated is when the stab in the back theory will come out to explain it for a lot of Germans, right? Mm. And then and also, I mean, this is a time of conspiracies. I mean, when you met, we have the French-German secret – the French-British secret treaty, that is true. Uh, France, Russia and, and, and uh, Britain come up with a series of secret treaties. In fact, when the, in 1918, the Soviets – publish all these secret treaties much to the embarrassment of the other countries um because they're really elaborate where they carve up the middle east and they talk about mm-hmm. different things they'll accomplish uh, and of course the thing that kicks all this off the assassination of franz ferdinand is a conspiracy done by honest to god secret society the black hand mm-hmm. uh, i mean it's it's it, i just love this chapter it's such a such a, a resonant part for the time yeah, I, I think, I mean, the, the greatest value of reading a book like this is actually, you know, it's not that, you know, you can learn to put on masks and convince people that you're, you know, a policeman when you're not or whatever. Like all of that stuff, it's just pure adventure, sort of nonsense, fantasy nonsense that's Comes you know, their fiction. But when you see it in the context, this is what people were reading, right? It's not right. just it's not just that it's an old book. It's that. We can feel what it was like to be in 1915, and mm-hmm. we can see from their perspective, well, this is an outlook into that, you know, fake world that really is a real world to them, right? It, because they go to the store and they pick – or the newsstand, they pick up the book. They read that, and they're talking about it, and it's in the – you know, it, it's – I, I read a lot of or go through a lot and a lot of old magazines from around this period and all the themes that, you know, this book gives insight into also give us insight into into the world of that time. And it's just so valuable to me to read this because I feel like I'm I'm I've stepped into a time machine and I, I can I can see what it's like to be in on the street in 1915 and to hear that racist talk and all that, you know, and and not have the because I have the perspective of, you know, living uh, a century later, um, I can see, oh, you guys are making the same mistake you did before. I mean, really, here's the thing. Don't have secret treaties with France. Then you don't have to get involved in World War One. Britain, you're out, right? They're, the Germans Never. aren't going to take you on by themselves. They, they want you as an ally. Never get involved in a land war in Asia. Or in Asia, right. <laughs> I think. I think that it, that's the real value of a book like this is, you know, it, it this I is agree. a pot boiler. Uh, from the period, it'd be like reading, you know, uh, what's that, you know, conspiracy book from a couple years ago that 
had a, a Da Vinci Code. That mm, I mean, right. I, I, I don't, I didn't read it. I don't expect it to be that well written, as, as well written as this. Um, but I've I'd read other John Buck and stuff, and I uh, I want to tell you guys about it because I thought it was really fun. It's a book um, or a short novella, novelette, long short story called The Grove of Ashtaroth. Have you read it, Mr. Jackson? I've heard of it. I might have read it a long time ago. I'm not sure. Um, Brian, did you make a noise? Yeah, that is a wild title, Grove of Ashtaroth. (laughs) Yeah, Grove of Ashtaroth. So I I pulled out the uh, Wikipedia description of the the plot, and I'll read it here. Or this is from somewhere, anyway. Excuse me, is Ashtaroth the Canaanite goddess? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so it says, In a remarkable short story, The Grove of Ashtaroth, the hero finds himself obliged to destroy the gorgeous little temple of a sensual cult because he believes that by doing so, he will salvage salvage the health and sanity of a friend. But he, is simultaneously, he simultaneously believes himself to be committing an unpardonable act of desecration, and the eerie voice that beseeches him to stay his hand is unmistakably feminine. So what what's going on is, it's I think in Rhodesia, a friend who he hasn't seen since they made their pile in in South Africa, I guess, um, comes to visit him on his estate. The John Buchan or Lord Tweedsmere style character who's gone to England has come back to visit his friend on his ranch. Um, but his friend has health has dwindled and he's become sicker and sicker and sicker in the intervening years. And they connect this to the clearing of the land and so it's it's like a weird fiction version of uh you know colonialism and it's it's quite fun um and there's a nice radio drama of it out there as well uh an old one so i think it's escapes escape or suspensed a version of that um buckins buckins fascinating he's he's written a ton of stuff a lot of i, I counted them up there's 101 books <laughs> oh wow. my goodness wow <laughs> like pretty amazing right well and, i mean he did have two hands yeah <laughs> <laughs> i guess 50 for each <laughs> one with his nose <laughs> um a, a summer poetry a lot of nonfiction biographies um, and uh, I, I was listening to some of the uh, uh, BBC audio dramas other than the, this one. There's one on right now called Witchwood, which is very well respected by a lot of people. It's uh, set in Scotland uh, in yeah. the witch, witch times. And it's got a lot of uh, symbolism that sounds pretty interesting. Is that, and that downloadable or just streaming? Uh, well, I think it's streaming through the conventional ways, but I have ways of getting downloadable versions wow. so i can i can hook you up if necessary <laughs> um but yeah so i'm i'm big into bucking uh but there's another one um called hunting tower is that in the i think i've i think i started listening to that one and i was like this is really cool but i i didn't want to get too deep on it because i want to stick to 39 steps um and that's about a a green grocer a retired green grocer who goes on to have a series of of uh, novels, um, and he's like he's like uh, Hannay in that he's always going into uh, un, unexpected situations and you know triumphing as the hero. But he's like a retired green grocer with a wife at home. So <laughs> it's know, pretty cool. 
Did you know that there's a Bucca novel called Mr. Steadfast and the hero is actually a pacifist? Wow. Uh, it might be Standfast, isn't it? Steadfast or Standfast? Oh, I, I may have. My, my notes say Steadfast, but uh, I may have written that wrong. It's but, cool. um, he it's dies cool... heroically. Um, he sacrifices his life, but he remains true to his pacifist uh, principles. So uh, Buckingham was was, you know, Buckingham was famously could not I- appreciate any modern art of any kind. But you you can <laughs> see that he really struggled, like he had read T. S. Eliot, for example, and uh-huh. just absolutely hated it. And well, you know, the wasteland. I mean, who, who here? I don't know. Maybe Brian. Maybe you can claim that you've read it and understood it and appreciated it. But I find it completely yeah. opaque. You know. Oh, I've taught it a few times, but ah, um, well, there you go then. But Lovecraft, uh, Lovecraft hated it. He has a parody called Waste Paper, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is pretty funny, actually. Um, no, I, oh, he's he's definitely a pre-modern guy in that sense, a uh, pre-modernist guy. And and one of the things about about 1914 is that shock when people, re, you know, the modern world suddenly comes to life mm. and and or again, to death. You, uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot of death. And you get that sense of people just having to unthink all these ideas. Like the the French have this ludicrous idea. I can't remember the, the name of the policy. It was um, like Special Order 25, something like that. But their idea of going into war was that they were going to charge with a bayonet because that would be the, the way to have a moral victory over the enemy. The enemy would be so wowed by you that they would just cave in. Mm-hmm. Your panache. Exactly. Yes. So they launched all these massive bayonet charges against Elan, I think, is what or you're Elan. Oh, Elan. Yeah, one of the French is, it was when they doff their hat while they're getting shot, right? <laughs> yes. Thank you. I mean, um, <laughs> oh my god. But no, no I'm. Uh, I, there's a book by Buckingham that I haven't uh, read either. It, um, it's about death, uh, called Memory Hold the Door, and um, apparently it was John F. Kennedy's favorite book, one of his favorite books. Um, and it was his last book. It's a meditation on death, I think. And it was published after after he died. It's published posthumously. Um, what a what a fascinating guy. He is. Uh, he uh, he's he's so interesting because because he's a kind of politician, right? He's it, kind of. He's, he's, I mean, he's kind of a politician. He's not a politician exactly, right? Because uh, he's he's doing the queen's job when the queen's not in town, which is all the time. Um, he's sort of symbolic, but he, he is fascinating because, you know, the current governor general, I can't remember who it is. Um, you know, they're appointees that they're all appointees. Right. But the thing is, is it seemed to be back then that, you know, you could have a guy like Churchill and you could have a guy like, uh, Buchan and you could have 50 other guys who were just as interesting that, you know, the the fact that Churchill, you know, was a novelist and that, uh, you know, a historian and wrote biographies and all, all that. It seemed like they're and just, a war hero and, and a, a um, all of that cricket right? player. Right. It's really like, good how, and how is that? How is it that, you know, we're stuck with <laughs> the people we've got now that, you know, uh, one of my students was telling me he was reading Hillary Clinton's biography. And I said, you know, she didn't write that, right? <laughs> or, oh, oh, it's terrible. It's, it's yeah, it's like, it is <laughs> garbage, right? What did Mark Twain say about the Book of Mormon? He said it was chloroform in print. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think he said if you removed, well, okay, do we really want to start a round of Mormon bashing? But uh, 
I was just um, thinking of that of that phrase, which I loved. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he. Yeah. Twain was not a fan of the Book of Mormon, but um, I think one of the things about these Victorian or Edwardian writers is that you know if if you or I never edited a thing that we wrote or went back and rewrote it, maybe we could you know maybe we would be a little more prolific too. Yeah. So oh, Fred, you 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 were saying you you just finished a book, right? A novel. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. It's in beta right now. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm. You know, it's it's funny because I did not have the uh, the uh, soul searching or the you know um, emotional moral crisis in the middle of it. I had so much fun writing that that I almost don't care if anybody ever reads it. It's it's really dangerous. <laughs> That's the best way to write, I think. Well, I, I had a fun, and you know, I'm definitely going to do you're more. Not doing the, so many books I read uh, that I try to read are written to be saleable, right? They're designed to right. fit a market, to mm-hmm. follow in the footsteps of yeah. some other piece of junk that just happened to be popular mm, for whatever right. reason. Right. And it's, it's you know, the only way for oh, whether I'm going to like something is is wait 50 years, <laughs> wait 50 years, <laughs> read the Wikipedia entry, and if people are still talking about it and, you know, pointing to it and from obscure mm-hmm. sources here and there, then uh, there's a good chance I, I will have some value. To, I, I, it's not like I go in looking for, ju- you know, saying everything's junk. I just assume it's all junk because I've, I've read a lot of junk. <laughs> I don't want to read junk. But well, this is when, so hard, though. I mean, not just that you have to wait 50 years. I mean, that's bad enough. But, um, but you know, you get uh, – I mean, we change our, our assessment of things. I mean, you get the um, – you know, through the 1600s, you get Shakespeare um, – you know, largely forgotten in Britain. He's just not very important. In the 1700s, they love him, but they think he's too sad. So there's that, for example, there's that version of Lear that someone does with a happy ending. <laughs> oh, and, and, no. then, and, and then the in the in the Victorian period, they find that they find that he's just too um, he's great, but he's too violent. So they <laughs> and too gory. Oh my god! Um, oh, I was I was when I was teaching in Louisiana. I remember there was um. I ran into all these all these high school teachers, and I said, "Well, what Shakespeare do you teach?" And they all said, "Julius Caesar." I said, "Well, that's that's odd." I mean, of all play, I I wouldn't use that to introduce someone to Caesar. Why do you pick that? And this is because it has no sex. Oh it was the only Shakespeare play they could find that had no sex. So you're saying each generation bowdlerizes Shakespeare, but for, for well, in a different they, way. They bowdlerize it, and also and and also it's it's the assumptions they bring to bear. You know, I mean, right now our generation is re- in science fiction. We're really, really concerned with gender and race, for example. I mean, that's you know, hence we just you know the Hugo's just blew up, right? Mm, um, right? I mean, that was not on the radar 15 years ago, except for you know very, very few people. Um, and that's going to change the way we look at books like. Um, well, we just talked about um, ancillary justice a couple months ago, right? Mm. You know, a book profoundly about gender. Um, that's going to change the way people write and what they produce. Jesse, you said people. Right, often for what a market has, we change the markets. You know, mm-hmm. as we bothered the past, we we alter what we expect from the present. Um, so, you know, that's it's it's so hard to tell um, what's going to be good. The, or I was teaching the Tempest yesterday, and oh yeah, I, I, it's so wonderful to read. It's just hilarious, and I yeah. mean, that's uh, when I read Shakespeare. I, I I mean, I don't remember a lot of jokes in Julius Caesar, but I'm sure they're there. Uh, not, not many. Because, uh, because oh, that so right at the beginning, that you know, thou naughty knave. Um, 
or or the scene where um, someone's talking about how uh, they tell they tell Caesar that he never listens to flattery, and that's how you flatter him. Right. That's, that's right. pretty. That's kind of arch, though. We're not putting any horns in anybody's head again, you know. <laughs> At the beginning of yeah, uh, okay. a few and, jokes here and there. Okay. Uh, good jokes. Prospero is explaining. It, it, Prospero exp- explains the backstory of how they ended up on this island. And, you know, it's classic science fiction info dump, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> they get through a lot of material to explain how the circumstances came up. <laughs> and the daughter's, like, falling asleep. Because <laughs> yeah. it's such a long morning. Yes. Pretend <laughs> me? And it's like, oh, yes, father. And it's like, oh, heavens. Everywhere, you know. Shakespeare loves to make fun of old people. He loves it. It's just a... Actually, isn't the info doesn't the info say, well, we came to this planet and then uh, Leslie Nielsen piloted the UFO to us? <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Jim Moon, we haven't heard. And I know that's not because you don't have great opinions. I think it's because, <laughs> you know, you're just so you're the real Canadian in this situation. You're the, the <laughs> nice guy. Um, what, what, what do you what did you think about this book? Because I, I just. I wanted your opinion on this. That's why I wanted you to do. Um, well, for me, you know, it's been we've had a fascinating discussion about the uh, the socio-political and historical ramifications of it. Um, what struck me is kind of how much this book um, has been a template for so much other fiction mm-hmm. that's followed after. I mean, you can clearly sort of see um, the roots of James Bond. Absolutely. Uh, in this, but you know, you, that you've got a whole kind of genres that splinter off from it i mean kind of this classic kind of mystery runaround with conspiracies i mean you know it runs it runs right up to the present day like the you know that the born films um yeah. are very much following this kind of um um you know sort of stalking on the run sort of travelogue kind of format and you know you, you see it everywhere, and the more the more I read this, it's more kind of I can I really appreciate how popular this book is because it's percolated so much through popular culture. I mean, it's had a tremendous amount of adaptations, which you know a lot of people know the story without having read the book. But at the same time, you can see kind of um, as Ian Fleming was influenced, Dennis Wheatley. Um, Oh yeah, certainly was hugely influenced by uh, these Richard Hannay adventures, oh. and yeah. you know it kind of there, there's so much that you can you can trace back to to the you know this this particular one book that was you know that that just keeps resonating with writers, and you, you know as as we said at the start, he really doesn't waste a word. It is it's kind of I don't want to call it pulp because that's almost demeaning, but it is. It is a British form of pulp writing at the time. It's serialized, it's in magazines, it's fast, it's paced. You know, the common man loves it, uh, as well as the critics. And, um, you know, you can see, you know, it's how influential he is. And the fact that, considering it's very early 20th century, it doesn't read dated, apart from the contemporary references. <laughs> it's not dated it's in funny. its language or pace. It's funny in yeah. all the adaptations they 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 move it around so the 35 is set in 35 the that's the Hitchcock and uh, I mean you want to talk about a guy who <laughs> who was inspired by this book I mean what's North by Northwest has right. has the yeah. scene yeah. that everybody tries to now shovel back into the book when they do their adaptation the 2008 TV adaptation I think it's BBC or ITV which is terrible it's the one with the the U-boat in the 
in the lock. <laughs> um, Loch Ness. Loch Ness. It, yeah, I think it's Loch Ness. It's it, it, in, 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 don't um, it's, it's a lock of some kind. I, but see, you know, Loch Ness, there's a river. How the hell do they get it up the river without, you know, being seen? <laughs> whatever, whatever. Anyways, um, the, you know, Hitchcock himself, you, this book is kind of the perfect inspiration for all his subsequent sort of thriller yeah. books or mm-hmm. thriller yeah. movies. Definitely. North by Northwest is what I was thinking, you know, getting Cary Grant getting run down by the uh, airplane, you know, the um, in the field and. Uh, bumping into this conspiracy and this conspiracy, and there's even someone knife through the heart in that. Mm. Yeah, that and that and the man who knew too much, right? Yeah, that was done yeah. twice, right? Mm. I think so. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah, Hitchcock did twice, just, didn't he? You you just happen to you're the last man who talks to this spy before he's murdered, and now you you're it basically. Isn't that the plot? Yeah, the man so. who knew too much. It's like yeah. the ring, except, that yeah, except the. Uh... <laughs> but I mean, I, it it does bug me in the Thirty Nine <laughs> Steps that they managed to kill the spy, but they and, and then oh, and we're going to kill that other guy. Let's do that tomorrow, though. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that that doesn't quite. Um. Yeah, doesn't okay, mean. I want to talk. We talked a, briefly about the lack of women in the book. Every single adaptation adds women some make scudder a woman and change her name some uh he runs the 2008 one is terrible he runs into a lady on the road who picks his pocket and she's actually the spy it's like it it basically takes out hannah as a character it's like why don't you just if you want to have a woman in it why don't you just make her hannah a woman that'd be a better version of it just because then all the adventures she has would be i don't know they insist on shoveling women into it. So it's not in the book. And I'm thinking, well, is that because, you know, movies, you you can't have a woman go to a movie with you unless she's going to have some romantic interest. Like, is that what they're thinking? I think so. I think it's kind of, oh, this is an adventure. So for guys, we better put a love interest in for the gals. It's something something always annoys me. Yeah. And well, it, my mom, my it's it's for so that my mom will go see it because she's she will say to me, oh, is that one of those movies that don't have any women in it? Yep. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's a real thing. My oh. wife and daughter are like that, too. Um, no, I I thought, which version was it that begins with the nanny and a pram who gets run down? It's the third, uh, 53 version, I think. That's the remake of the original Hitchcock, which is yeah. not not that great. Although so it's better a, than the 2008 man is. And it does have an auto gyro. Which That's which right. makes things better. I mean, not as good as you, but still. But there, but there, there's this bit where uh, this, there's this nanny pushing around a pram, and there's a, you know, and then it turns out that there's no baby in the pram. There's just a gun. <laughs> I thought, this, this is like the, the, the male, you know, the male fan. All right, we'll do the female stuff. All right, but there's a gun. We can get going, you know. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, but they repeat the, you know, they're chained together. I mean, there's, it works well on the, in the Hitchcock film. It works well in the 53. The 78 is what they were saying is the most, uh, on the Wikipedia entry, it says it's the most faithful. But it takes tons of liberties, too, um, including giving Hannah a, a, an afro, which I was not. <laughs> I was like, I'm just thrown out. <laughs> as, a, as a disguise or naturally? Just natural. The actor has it. 
big. Oh, the black power version of Hene. Now I want to see a black exploitation <laughs> version of Thirty Nine Steps. He's a, he's a white man, unfortunately, and the white man's burden comes up in both the early films as well. Shaft um, he goes to Africa. Shaft goes to Scotland when he's tied. <laughs> this white man's burden. Um, the uh, the the the. 2008 is not worth watching. 1978 is worth watching. I would say the Hitchcock is definitely worth watching. Mm, yeah. The 53, which is on YouTube, uh, is the only place I could find it. Was uh, It was okay. But uh, if you guys haven't had a chance, check out that the latest uh, 2000-ish uh, two-part one with Tom Baker playing, uh, not Hannah, but the the guy Hannah tells the story to. I guess at the Ministry of Espionage or whatever it is, um, and that's that's a really terrific adaptation. Including one of the things that I like is that you know in the something that's added to the first movie is the and I guess the second movie is that Mister Memory is the key to the Blackstone or the Thirty Nine Steps, whatever they want to call the group. Mister um, Memory from the first movie is the guy who memorizes 50 facts a day and he's part of the the stage show. Right. Right. And they sneak him in somehow to memorize all the documents. Like, I guess, cause cameras are too big or whatever. Um, but in the, in the 2000 ish audio drama, they, they mentioned, they have Mr. Memory there, but he doesn't interfere with the plot. And this is one of the things I, I mean, when we've got uh, like eight different adaptations and there are literally like that uh, comics and the comics one that I posted to the the PDF page has um, it's set in the fifties, uh, I think nineteen fifty. So all the cars are you know tear teardrop shaped and it's it's they adapt it for the time period whenever they're doing it. Um, there's there is this effect that some things are added to the story actually are slight improvements. So there is a temptation to when you see the airplane in the book to add the airplane with machine guns right just like in northwest north by northwest mm. which is a great little addition to being chased down not just by a crop duster but by a crop duster with machine guns on it right and so they do that they add that to the 2008 and that's fine but then when they go you know you boat in the lock i mean that's a great idea but how the hell did it get in there okay so it's actually a terrible idea and it's it's a bridge too far, I guess. And, I and a steal from the uh, private life of uh, Sherlock Holmes, the Billy Wilder film, which is a oh. great film. <laughs> oh. And and uh, that is more of a comedy. Mm. Uh, I think this is, it plays well. I mean, Hitchcock does a great job playing up the comedic aspects of it. Well, you know, Hannah, if he had the access to a joke shop and itching powder and some comedy spectacles, <laughs> he could bring down a government, really, couldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but, Jim, you said, you know, one of the things that you said that really struck me was you said that this was a, a book that would appeal to literary critics, but also to the common man. And I think that's that's part of that is that this is um, Hannah is just some guy and then he acquires lots and lots of power. So you get that that sense of um, of. You know, a kind of wish fulfillment and and also uh, um, expansive imagination. I mean, it's like the um, the Twilight books. One of the reasons they're so successful is because of uh, they're being so bad in one respect. The the uh, heroine 
is a complete cipher. She's, you know, she has nothing to her. She's not really a character. So anybody can step in there and have those adventures. You know, and here, anyone with itching powder can bring down the government. You know, anyone can quickly bribe the, you know, the milkman and, and head out to the country. I mean, it's... Uh, well, I think I, I, I don't know 100% that that explains why back then everybody liked it. But I can, you know, we are sort of... I'm thinking like, now. Now, absolutely. You know, we even the poorest among us, you know, in North America and I guess in Britain as well, are not starving to death. No matter what we do wrong, you know, no matter what errors we make, we're not going to starve to death. So we have this sort of pile we're sitting on, like Hannah is. And even if we don't acknowledge it, we can uh, pretty much do anything we want. Um, and so in that respect, we are like Hannah, right? We're free, and, except for the ties that we tie ourselves to. Um, but... If you're sitting in a trench and you're reading this book, it is an escape, absolute escape. I, I think yeah. that's the appeal there, is yeah. that you 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 escape back to London and all the reminders that of the privations you have and the the conspiracies that are above your head. You know, at least they're getting solved in this book. While you have a few more cigarettes and more, you know, wait wait for the the next whistle to call, right, to go over the top. Oh my God! World War One is just so horrible. You just like you would want as many books as possible to try and escape. Well, it, it reminds me of um, I used to have a copy of this. That um, in World War Two, the U.S. government asked a bunch of publishers to um, mm-hmm. donate copyrights for books for soldiers, and uh, Arkham House donated. Um, uh, I don't know if it was the whole Outsider and others, but it was a bunch of Lovecraft. Right. And uh, I used to have a copy of it. It was a really weird shape. It was like a sideways. Um, paperback. Forces editions was, were to fit in yeah. a in a in a shirt a pocket. pocket yeah, mm. yeah. And it was. Um, and my first thought was, "Holy cow! This is the worst thing I want to read." If I'm on like you know Okinawa, <laughs> 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 the most terrifying writer of our of our century. Great, thanks a lot, Washington. You know, but, but apparently that was um, that was part of the post war um, interest in Lovecraft was came from GIs who were like, "Hey, this is pretty good," and and they wanted more of it. Um, so I mean, it's um, you know, the, if you're in the trenches, you want to you want to you know, you want to escape in all kinds of ways. I and mean, this is uh, Jack Vance apparently composed uh, "Dying Earth" when he was in the South Pacific. Hmm. Right? You know, you want to you want to be somewhere else. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>